Bryce, what are you doing? Trying to, you know, game. <laughs> what? This game is really hard. Pac-Man? Uh, yeah. Dude, you're supposed to be playing the game for next week's episode of Arcade Bookshop. I mean... <sighs> I will. I'm really close to beating this. Right. And what about the book? Huh? We're supposed to finish a book for the podcast, too? Oh, yeah. I finished that last week. Yes! Oh, did you finally beat it? Uh-huh. The first level. Oh, boy. You can listen to new episodes of Arcade Bookshop every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get your pods. You'll always find us with a controller in one hand and a book in the other. listening to the drunken pen writing podcast i'm your host caleb james with me today spencer the roswell rascal church that's mm, it's wholesome yeah, it's kind of wholesome i like that uh we have a special guest today that we are trying desperately to work with <laughs> we normally use google meet and for some reason today of all days it decided that my computer was no longer able to upgrade to the newest uh whatever Google needs for it to work the requirements. So we are using Zoom, which is just terrible. We've never had good experience with Zoom. Uh, we're not able to see our guest today, Mr. Stephen Uwanu. So uh, I do thank you for coming on, though. Um, I appreciate you sticking around through 35 minutes of preamble and messing around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're also our first audio-only guest because normally we at least see the guest, even yeah, though we right. don't record the video, but we can't see you because it was lagging terribly. I showered for nothing then, huh? <laughs> I know. I, I put on a nice hoodie and yeah. everything. <laughs> put our pants on. Uh, <laughs> so, Stephen, I will. you know what I'll do since we're get another fun feature of Zoom? We only have 40 minutes here. So, for the sake of brevity, I will read your bio because that's the most professional thing I could think of doing. And then maybe some people will want to check out your work, and it'll also save me some explanations. Sounds good. So, Stephen G. Iwanu is the author of the novels After Pearl. That's actually your newest one that's not dropping until 2025. We'll get to that. Yesteryear, which is your novel that just dropped in October of this year. Rook, which came out in 2022. And the short story collection Muscle Cars, which came out in 2015. Stephen also has been awarded an honor certificate from the Society of Children, Book Writers, and Illustrators, the Best Short Screenplay Award at the 36 Stars Denver Film Festival, and the 2021 International Islands Award for Best Historical Novel. Uh, you also have an MFA from Queens University of Charlotte and an MA from Miami University, and you are a resident... Uh, of Buffalo, which you write a lot of work from. And the only things I have in my notes about Buffalo are the fact that it's cold and they have good chicken wings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the chicken wings are good year round. It only snows, you know, half the year. <laughs> that, that's not too bad. For those who are interested in your current book that just dropped, and we'll we'll jump around here with your other work too, but yesteryear is about the creator of the Lone Ranger. When you first sent me the email, just with like the synopsis and stuff, I kind of breezed through it real quick. And I was like, wait a minute, this is historical fiction. I thought, because it says, uh, you know, the 90th anniversary of the Lone Ranger. So I was thinking, oh, Lone Ranger, it's a nonfiction book. But then I was looking, no, this is like a fun crime noir set in Buffalo with the creator of the Lone Ranger and gangsters and all kinds of like awesome stuff. Yeah, it's really a mix of historical fiction, biographical fiction, uh, noir, like you mentioned. Um, it's a comic novel. It's it's a lot of blending of, of different genres together. It was really fun to write and research, and I'm hoping folks find it a fun read. Have you ever worried about upsetting historical purists, like those who go, that's not what happened, I can't handle such a thing? A, a little bit with 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 yesteryear, not so much with Rook, um, because with yesteryear, it's the story of or my imagining of how the creator of the Lone Ranger, a man named Franz Stryker, uh, came out with came up with the idea for the iconic hero. And the reason why I was a little bit worried uh, is that there has been a oh a controversy for about eighty years now about who really did create the Lone Ranger. Um, was it Franz Stryker, who was the main writer, or was it the owner of radio station WXYZ in Detroit, who Stryker worked for? And so even if you go to the Wikipedia page for The Lone Ranger, you'll see, you'll see that it was they have it listed that uh, The Lone Ranger was created by Franz Stryker or George W. Trendle, the owner of WXYZ. You know, Trendle was a businessman. He, he owned radio stations. He owned theaters and Nickelodeons before that. He wasn't a creative person. Stryker, on the other hand, was a struggling playwright from here in Buffalo who was sending out scripts trying to get radio stations to buy them for anywhere between 2 and $6 an episode. And that's how he and Trendle crossed paths. And to fast forward to the controversy, well, there's a couple controversies, but the ownership or the creator credits was really kind of muddied in the 1940s, about 10 years after the Lone Ranger had been on radio and was, you know, enormously successful. And then Trundle started claiming in interviews and articles that he created it, not Franz Stryker. So I guess my only worry was that the purists would start, you know, arguing that, oh, no, no, it was Trundle who, who created it with the help of, you know, the writers at WXYZ. And, but none of that has happened yet. Everything so far, the book's been been well received and no old controversies have been stirred up yet. <laughs> I would hope not. Well, the thing about the Lone Ranger, what, 10 more years and he's in the public domain, so anyone could just write Lone Ranger stories anyway. So if they're getting <laughs> upset about it at this point, I don't know I don't know what to tell you. Well, so it's kind of messed up to get to get upset where, like you were saying, there's not a clear indication on who actually did anyway. So, like, it's hard for them well, to get my, bent out of shape out of it regardless. Mind, yeah, in my mind, it's clear. I mean, Stryker was, uh, had based the... The Lone Ranger script on a, a episode of a series called Covered Wagon Days that had that he wrote and was broadcast on WEBR here in Buffalo two years earlier before The Lone Ranger uh, premiered on the radio. And what he did is he he repurposed episode number 10 and with some, you know, input from 
Trendle and the creative team at WXYZ, he repurposed that script and created the Lone Ranger character. And he was the main writer for the first 20 years from 1932, 33 to 1954 when Trendle ended up selling the rights. And the reason why Trendle had the rights in the first place is that after the Ranger had been on the air for about a year, Trendle approached Stryker with an interesting proposition. Uh, so remember, this is, uh, you know, the dark days of the Depression. Stryker had about a dozen family members that were either living with him or he was financially responsible for because they lost everything in the, the stock market crash. And so Stryker was here in Buffalo. He was selling Lone Ranger scripts to Trendle at the end, about $7 an episode. And Trendle knew of his financial situation and, and the pressure he was under supporting all these extended family members. So he made him a proposition. He said, look, why don't you stop sending these scripts out to all these radio stations across the country for $2 here and $4 here. Move your family to Detroit. I'll put you on salary. You can be the head writer. You'll have more money than you ever made in your life. You'll have job security throughout the Depression. I'll guarantee that. But I would like to buy the rights to the Lone Ranger for $10. And remember, he was selling individual scripts for 7 And now Trendle offered him job security for $10. At this point, the Ranger hadn't exploded yet. They, it took them about eight or nine months to get a sponsor. And other radio stations were we're starting to, you know, pick up the broadcasts and carry it. Uh, but Trendle, I think he was a good businessman and he knew that things were trending in the right direction for this to be a major hit. Stryker, on the other hand, never had a major hit. He was just a, you know, a guy from Buffalo trying to keep his family afloat. Right. And so he, he and he wasn't much of a risk taker. So he took the deal. And so he sold, he handed over the rights for $10. And of course, the Lone Ranger exploded. So think of all the comic books. And Stryker wrote those in the beginning. The movies, the hardback novels that Stryker wrote, the comic strips in the paper, toys, you know, holsters, guns, boots, all that money went to Trendle. And then in 1954, with TV starting to come along, Trendle ended up selling the rights for $3 million, which is not only a really good return on investment for <laughs> 10 bucks, uh, but it was also the largest deal in entertainment history at that time. And, you know, Stryker missed out on, on literally millions of dollars. And when Trendle started claiming that he was the creator of the Lone Ranger, Rand kind of missed out on a lot of the the fame and popularity and notoriety that he could have enjoyed. So when I did research and I found all this out, I said, you know what? I, I want to write about this guy. He was he had a good heart. He did what he thought was best for his family. And he never cried or whined about it or sued or complained. He said, nobody held a gun to my head. You know, I made a business decision. I did what I best I thought was best for everybody. So I had a lot of respect when I did this research. And I said, you know, let's write a fun book. Let's make Stryker the hero of an action story, you know, cause he always wrote action stories. Let's make him the hero for a change and let him save the day. So that was my intent. Was he at least like taken care of it all? Like whenever the other guy like sold it for like the 3 million, did he like at least like get a little kickback <laughs> off of that? Like, or, or something like, you know what I mean? Like let him wait his beak a little bit or was it just like, you get a bottle of whiskey or yeah. something? Yeah. He, he got a, a bonus. I can't remember if it was, $5,000 or $10,000, uh, you know, it was something that was very minuscule compared to the, the fortune that Trendle made. Because Stryker went on, he's also the writer and creator of The Green Hornet, 
as well. Yeah, um, yeah, because they're like, uh, well, at least I think like in the comic books, they're supposed to be like distant relatives or, or something like that, right? Yeah, he's like the great, the Green Hornet, I think is like the, the great, great nephew of the Lone Ranger. And, you know, he, Stryker was working for Trendle and WXYZ at the time. So that intellectual property of the growing Green Hornet, that was, that was Trendle's, right? It's just like if you develop software for a company, you can't take it with you. Microsoft keeps it. You know, that's, that's clearly, you know, that, that Stryker wasn't entitled to that money or deserving of that money. But between the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet and his other big hit with Sergeant Press and the Yukon, which wasn't as popular, made Trendle a fortune. And so he did get a little taste at the end when he sold it for three million. Like I said, it was for, you know, five or ten thousand dollars. So a little bit of a parting gift, but you know, nothing that really changed his life uh, the way that Lone Ranger money could have. Well just to put it into context, ten dollars at that time was like equivalent to 180 now yeah so imagine selling batman or james bond or something for 180 dollars. that's not very good that's what i was thinking three million dollars back then that's a lot of money but if you're selling you know the rights to something like that and back then it was just about you know making especially during the depression you just want to be able to survive so it's tough to say like what would you do in that person's shoes but if he was making seven dollars a story anyway right. <laughs> extra three bucks to sell the rights to a character you know trend is just a good business move i guess you know on his part he was able to recognize that this is a character that can uh potentially well which obviously came to fruition but potentially have a lasting impact on society and entertainment so you can't really fault that guy either like he obviously yeah. made three million dollars he made a great move but yeah from a business perspective you know you, you can't fault trendle uh his nickname was the miser of motown because he was so <laughs> cheap and uh Kept a, a couple set of books that he would, you know, show his employees, you know, oh, I, you know, I can't give you that raise. Look at my books. I'm bleeding money. And he was that type of guy. Uh, but yeah, he did very well for himself. There's, there's no question about that. When you went, what happened, what, what happened to you, dude? My vocal? Oh, this is good. Did my mixer die too? Okay. I think You're I'm back. back. <laughs> it's like, that's all we need. <laughs> the mixer dies. The other computer dies. Just throw it all in the garbage. <laughs> so you said you had a lot of fun writing this book obviously you did a good bit of research when it came to i mean just basically everything in regards to the lone ranger but since you seem to write a lot about buffalo i would imagine a lot of you know just the city is bleeding over into your works and you just happen to like i would say you've been to a lot of these places that are if they still exist or you know the history of them yep. so how much did you actually have to research buffalo or is that just kind of natural for you I would say it's kind of natural. A lot of those places are still around that, that I wrote about. The, the Color Musicians Club it is closed right now for renovations, but that's been you know around since the, the late 20s, early 30s here in town. Um, Volkers uh, has recently closed. Um, that's the speakeasy that, that Stryker and his friends hang out at. WEBR, the radio station where Stryker worked at, is still broadcasting today on the AM dial. So yeah, I was able to go visit all those places. Um, when Stryker died in 1962, his, his estate left all his papers to the University of Buffalo. And I'm an alumni, so I had access to go in. And there's about 30 cartons of material, um, you know, old scripts, letters, telegrams, his typewriter writer, you know, all sorts of cool stuff that you, that I was able to go through. 
And then in the back of the book, there's a, a bibliography of, of all the kind of resource materials and books and articles that I read to help prepare me to write this. And that was not only about the Lone Ranger, but also about like the early days of radio, you know, making sure I got those types of details right. You know, the early days of WXYZ, you know, making sure that, again, that, that I was as historically accurate as I wanted to be <laughs> when you write a, a, a historical fiction. So yeah, the research was fun and I didn't set any time limits. Like I'm going to research, you know, the first six months of the year and then start writing. I just researched until I felt like, yeah, I had enough to kind of create my own fictional world of, of Buffalo and Detroit in, in 1932. This was one of the first historical fiction novels I've heard of that had a noir style to it. When you think about it, it's so fitting with, you know, obviously the 30s, just because that's when that stuff started coming around in the pulp uh, magazines and whatnot. But just like the actual story of how the Lone Ranger came to be just seems like it was like a match made in heaven. Yeah. And, I, you know, again, it wasn't kind of my intent in the beginning to do that. I wanted to make a, a write a fun novel. I was thinking specifically of Shoeless Joe, which uh, by W. P. Kinsella, which the movie Field of Dreams is based on, and The Natural by Bernard Malamud, who you know that was also a movie starring Robert Redford. Both of those were baseball novels, and so my mantra of writing this, because those two novels also you know they were concerned with myth making and heroes, and I, I I wanted to incorporate that magical realism. I wanted to incorporate all that in the story of the Lone Ranger. And so my mantra was, because those were baseball novels, was swing for the fences. And to me, that meant, you know, no joke was off limit. No brush stroke could be too broad. I'd give myself total creative freedom. So I knew that, you know, obviously Fran Stryker had to be in the novel as a character. George W. Trendle had to be in it. John Barrett was a radio actor here in Buffalo who worked for WEBR. And when they did a test pilot of the Lone Ranger here in Buffalo, he was the first person, the first actor to ever play the Lone Ranger. So I knew he had to be in it. But then I thought, well, all right, why don't I have other people, historical figures from that time who were in the city be in my novel? And one of those guys was uh, Stefano Magadino, who was the head of the Buffalo Mafia for decades and one of the original members of the Crime Commission out of New York. And I don't know if he and Stryker bumped pads, you know, or crossed paths. I yeah. doubt it. But why not? Why not have him in? And I decided to do that once I read this this article that his nickname was the undertaker because Mag magadino owned a couple funeral parlors and he was a mortician he was a, a funeral parlor owner as part of his legitimate front and that's cool i just thought that was <laughs> yeah. i just thought that was cool right so let's put him in there and then uh, jimmy slattery was the uh, former light heavyweight champion that came out of south buffalo and by the early 30s, you know, alcohol was taking its toll, um, but he was still fighting and still trying to battle the bottle. And, you know, why don't I throw him in there? So Slattery's, you know, Stryker's friend. And at this time, you know, a lot of the stories that are in this book are stories my dad would tell me because he grew up in the 20s and 30s here in Buffalo in the Greek section of town. And he lived above my grandfather's restaurant. And I never met my grandfather. He passed away before uh, I was born. But I thought, well, why not have him hang out at my grandfather's restaurant? So I made my grandfather a character and kind of incorporated some of the, the family stories of those days when we had the restaurant. So it was it was tremendous fun to write 
and kind of reimagine the world based on fact, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> I mean, that gives you a good basis, too. That gives you a good, like, you know, like a base for your story because it's like, okay, this stuff was real. How could I make it fun? Right. And then you can expand upon, you know, it's like the gangster mortician. Like, that's yeah. just cool right there. Like, you could do so much with yeah. that if you wanted to. You go as far as, as you want with that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it gives, it gives you touch points in terms of, you know, plot points, you know, this is what happens, has to happen in December. This is what, you know, it premieres in January of 1933. You know, there's certain things that you have to get, you have to, you know, stay true to. And so you're right. It kind of gives you the guardrails to not veer completely off into to fantasy, but really kind of tell Stryker's story in a, a fun and creative and imaginative way. Do you always incorporate historical works into your fiction? Because I think I was looking at, um, was it your short story collection also dealt with like historical things? No, it was most Rook did. Uh, Rook the did. first novel that came out. Yeah, uh, that was based on the man uh, named um, Al Nussbaum. And Al grew up in Buffalo in the 50s, uh, married his high school sweetheart, owned a couple businesses, kind of an entrepreneur, and would tell his wife occasionally that he had to go out of town for work. But Al's real job was robbing banks. And he robbed about six or seven before his wife or the FBI knew what he was up to. And then he had to go, you know, on the run. And so that first novel is, is based on Al's part of the end of his crime career before he got arrested. So I, I didn't set out to write historical fiction. Uh, I just kind of stumbled across these these real life characters. And I just thought, man, this is so interesting. You know, I want to write a novel about Franz Stryker or Al Nussbaum. And, you know, then I was kind of off to the races. How have you found the novel writing process? Because I we've talked to a lot of authors on here. We had one, Benjamin Cross. It took him 10 years to get his first novel written and published. But then we've had other authors who come on and it's like, oh, I wrote my first novel in a couple months and it got published. So it seems like the gamut's all over the place. So what was your little adventure there? Well, that last guy only took him a couple months. I hate him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I took a long journey, to be honest with you. I started writing, I was, you know, sophomore in high school, uh, sophomore in college, and I went 30 years until my short story collection, Muscle Cars, was finally accepted and published. So I tell people, hey, it took me 30 years to write the first book. I had, you know, a Two or three failed novels in that time period, a failed short story collection, failed screenplay, you know, but I was writing and submitting and getting rejected and disappointment, disappointed. Um, but, you know, I didn't quit. And I finally got that Muscle Cars short story collection published. And that kind of opened the door for me. I would say that Rook and Yesteryear both took about four years to write from the time I started till the time it was finished and came out. The book that's coming out in 2025, I call it my pandemic novel. I did it in about half the time. It has nothing to do with the pandemic, but I started it right before lockdown and then I finished it two years later. So if you think about that period, you couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you can't watch Netflix, can't watch Netflix all the time. Uh, so people read to escape. You know, I wrote to escape. And I created a, a alcoholic private eye in 1942 that basically has just woken up from a five-day bender 
He can't remember anything. Two shots have been fired from his gun. He doesn't remember doing that. And the police want to talk to him about a missing singer. And that's how the first chapter opens up. Ooh, intrigue. Yes. (laughs) So, yeah, I wanted to write pure escapism because I was really just escaping COVID, you know, just in my in my house by myself to give me something to do and not, you know, climb the walls. Well, that's a lot more uh, a productive use of your time versus your protagonist drinking his life away and potentially <laughs> being go. involved in a murder. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming this has something to do with most likely just your publisher doesn't want your books to come out too close together and compete. But why 2025 for this newest book? Yeah, you hit it right on the head. Just so uh, the two two novels don't compete with each other, Yesteryear and After Pearl. And also uh, give me a little bit of a breather and hopefully start working on the next novel. So, yeah, but it's mostly just not to compete with the with each other. That was a good idea. That's one of those tricky things, too, especially, like you know, it took you so long to get that first collection published. It's just like, I'm just happy that it's coming out. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't care what you do, yeah, with it, just as long as it's out there at some point. Well, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I am not getting any younger. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get, let's get the work out. But yeah, you know what? Time goes so fast now. 2025, it's scheduled for May of 2025. It's going to be here in, in no time, especially, you know, we'll start marketing it at least six months ahead of time before it's released. So now you're talking, you know, you're starting about this time next year. Um, I'll be start, you know, doing interviews and, and promotional work for, for After Pearl is the name of that novel. Coming on to podcasts and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, the, the high-end yeah. podcast, <laughs> just the DPW, the working mm-hmm. equipment. Are you currently working on any projects for the future? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I finished After Pearl, um, I've got a writer's group, and I, I sent it off to, to them. And the first person responded was uh, Carla Dameron, who's a crime fiction writer out of uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, her latest book was just rele- released. And she read she read After Pearl. And her first question was, hey, is this a series? And I said, no, you know, it's just a one-off. I wrote it during the lockdown. She said, oh, I think it could be a series. And then Ashley Warlick, who as another writer in my group, her last novel is called The Arrangement. Her first question was, is this a series? Because I could see this being a series. And I said, no, 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 it's just a a standalone. I wrote it during, you know, COVID. And then I showed it to my publisher and he said, is this a series? Because I think, you know, somebody like Netflix would be interested in it. And I said, yes, it is a series. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, it was a series all along. (laughs) Of course, I had no idea for a follow-up book. So I had to, you know, come up with another Nicholas Bishop mystery. Um, So I'm about 100 pages into the first draft right now. We'll see if this really goes anywhere or not. That's an awesome private eye name, by the way. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where I, I got that from. I used, in my early days of writing when I wasn't getting published, I used the Nick, the name Nick or Nicholas a lot. And I ended up naming my, my son that name just because I like the name. And I don't know where Bishop came from because his nickname is Nicky the Weasel because he really doesn't have a moral code. You know, I got kind of fed up watching these TV shows or detective movies where, you know, they live by their own moral code and, you know, they fight the system because it's their. <laughs> we got booted.
Okay, I'm back. <laughs> All right. We are back. This seems so stupid that you could do that. Yeah. So Zoom booted us because we hit the 40-minute mark, and then what I did was I just sent another meeting, and it just works. So why why even pay for the yeah. Zoom upgrade? I guess just so you don't have the mild <laughs> inconvenience of that. Oh, yeah. Whatever. Well, anyway, you were talking about moral something or other before you got kicked off. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I was saying that my, in my novel that's coming out in 2025 after Pearl, uh, my main character is nicknamed Nicky the Weasel because he's kind of a weaselly guy. He doesn't have a strong moral character like you see in a lot of the, the one-dimensional, you know, detectives in the movies and TV who have their own, you know, moral code that, you know, usually bumps up against, you know, the, the police department or the authorities. This, my character is just kind of a, a weaselly guy. It was a interesting character to explore, you know, much different than a Fran Stryker character. The, the challenge there was to make this weaselly guy likable to the readers uh, or likable enough so they would keep turning the pages and, and see how his story ended. So that comes out, like I said, in 2025. It'll be interesting to see how, how he's received. If you go with the series idea and expand upon these stories and, you know, create more stories, do you have, you know, like say you're going for a trilogy or something, do you have a name for that? Like I think like Walter Mosley's The Easy Rollins books or, you know, 007 books or something like that. Yeah, I don't. um, I kind of, and I haven't talked with this with my publisher at all uh, or any of the marketing folks. Um, you know, I just kind of think of it as a Nicholas Bishop mystery. And I kind of think that they all might be set in 1942. So maybe the, maybe I'll work that date in there somehow. Uh, I'm not sure yet. So I, I'm sure all that's going to be fleshed out in 2024 when we come up with the marketing campaign. That'll be a lot of fun though. Like just the, the genre itself, it does so well right. and people love reading those kind of books. So you can really, if you do it good enough, you can just go endlessly with that series. So I've, I'm really looking forward to checking those out when that yeah. comes. Uh, is that like, yeah, good, like me a good noir story, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. And even, even if you think about like uh, that new reboot of Perry Mason that that's out, that has its second series was out, second season was out, you know, going back to kind of like Perry Mason's origin. And that's very, very noir compared to the TV show that I grew up watching the reruns of. I hope there's more people like me out there that, that like reading about uh, that era and, and that kind of, those kind of stories. So, you know, I, I'm hopeful for, for 2025. I forgot to ask this at the beginning, but if you were going movie ratings, what would you classify your books? Uh, because crime noir can often be very gritty and hard hitting. So would you like a rated R, a PG-13? Where would you... Just for the fans who are listening who might want to pick it up for their kids or something. Yeah, I, I think, I th- you know, PG-13, R- minus. <laughs> is there <laughs> such a thing? <laughs> uh, yeah, around there. Uh, it's not real gory. It's not, it's trying to stay true to kind of the, the classic detective fiction from the 30s and 40s. So, yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, there is, you know, there's some violence. There's some guns. Uh, you know, I got Nazis in there. You know, it it really compared to some of the stuff. It's it's really kind of you know PG thirteen borderline R. That's fun. Yeah, it doesn't always have to be hard because some of the pulp stuff I've read, Ed McBain, I think they yeah. go a little a little mm-hmm. saucy with the language, you know. But usually yeah. even those don't go over the top. But I've had I've read some noir that's like okay, this is just violent for violence sake or 
a little over the top ridiculous, but you know, if he's got a good mystery in the atmosphere, that's what's really important. Well, it, it's weird for like those stories set back then because it's like what was considered, you know, maybe like risque ri- or back then is like, you know, like tame. nothing n- now. So, yeah, the, the, Crazy adventures of yesteryear, no pun intended. But uh, the crazy adventures might not be so crazy when you look through a modern lens, always. But that, well, you know what? That actually brings up a good question. A little digression here. Do you have any issues when it comes to writing historical fiction of not adding anything modern to it, even if it's just the viewpoint you have? No, I try to stay very true to the era that I'm writing in. So I'll check, and I know my editors check just to make sure that everything is as is, is realistically depicted as, as possible. I'll give you an example. I wrote a sentence and it contained, I used echo chamber. And I thought, well, wait a minute, is echo chamber used in 1941 or 42? I, I figured it was, but I, had a, I, I would double check something like that just to make sure um, that I had it right. We're, I'm very diligent and conscious of that, so I probably wouldn't, I shouldn't say that, I haven't as yet used that device of adding a modern bit or twist to something that was uh, a period piece. I had a Western story one time where I have a, like a bandit character refer to one of the young men as a Casanova, I believe it was, uh-huh. and... Uh, one of my beta readers informed me that Casanova was not a thing like that yeah. didn't exist yet or something. It's either Casanova or Lothario or one of those kind of sayings, but it was like uh-huh. it didn't exist at the time period. And I was like, oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So when you write anything yeah. that's set in a time yeah. period, it's like you can't catch them all, but hopefully you have editors or uh, beta readers who could do that for you. Yeah, yeah. But stuff like that can slip by. And so, uh, I don't think that I was caught on anything with yesteryear or Pearl. So I think they both, both of those novels were passed the test, I think, for, for authenticity. What about moral things such as, uh, like you think of the old Philip Morrow slapping a sense into yeah. a woman or something like that. Like you can't do that now. So if you're writing a contemporary book, but it's set in a time period like that, do you ever come across that or you just kind of go, ah, that, it doesn't need to be in it. Personally, I wouldn't write it, but you know, I would just avoid that if I could. Yeah. It's, it's called like a sensitivity edit that the novels sometimes go through just to make sure that there's nothing that, you know, is going to alienate, you know, readers so, yeah, I probably wouldn't write a scene like that. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't have the hero doing something like that or the protagonist. But, yeah, I, I think that I, I, I'm sensitive to that. And I think I think most publishers are, too, to be honest with you. That's the funny thing about the past is that the hero would, like, slap a woman or yeah. get hammered drunk at, you know, just drink whiskey with every meal. And it's just like, we look at it now, it's so ridiculous and over the top. But back then, that was a manly yeah. man. But you brought up a good point because I know a lot of publishers use uh, sensitivity readers. And I mm. used to just get offended by the idea because it's like, oh, you're just editing my work, but uh, steer it towards a certain audience. Now you're messing up my art. But then when you look at it, you know, take a step back from it, and you go, well, no, maybe it'll make the work better depending on the situation. And you can always go over the top with these things. But, you know, do you need your Philip Morrow smacking the woman for no reason. No, you don't. I could see that would be an interesting process. I haven't gone through that yet. Uh, I don't know if the publishers, because for a little bit there, they were really heavily doing that. 
but uh, they got some blowback, and I think maybe uh, the pushback stopped them as much. So I don't know how that process works, but I could imagine it would be it could be daunting. Even if you were the reader, you'd be like, "Well, is this offensive or not?" Yeah. And you kind of have to, you know, think about it. And I don't know if you have a checklist you go through. <laughs> I'm sure some do. Yeah, yeah, and I think, like you said, I take the approach that going with an open mind. They're trying to make the book better, right? That's what an editor does: trying to make the book better. And yeah, you have to be going with an open mind and and uh, and be humble about it. That you may have created it, you may have written that sentence or that chapter, but that doesn't mean that it is in publishable shape. And it's the editor's job to make sure that it, he, he or she gets you there. So that that's my approach to it. I don't get offended by it. And uh, you know, they they it's it's getting a different perspective, a different set of eyes on it. And uh, a lot of times they. We're cutting things, and you can't tell that it was cut. You know, it's like, oh, this is a little tighter. Nothing's really missing. That wasn't needed. Let's move forward. So I go in with a pretty open mind about it. Well, if you can get a good editor or editors that, especially if you can work with them frequently, and you you know get a trust build up, then you know they're not doing it. You know, even just for monetary reasons, they want to make the work as the best it could be. So if you if you get that set up, it's pretty it's pretty sweet. Then, you know, we were talking about the sensitivity readers and I, I, horror is the one that always comes to me because it's hard to shock people or, or be horrific and not be, you know, abhorrent with yeah. what you're writing. Like You <laughs> can't always write nice things in a horror story. Uh, when you write, you know, crime noir set in the 30s, just for the sense of realism, yeah. you do have to make some of the characters bastards. Yeah. Uh, you have to have, you know, give them some toxic viewpoints that, you know, back then probably weren't. I mean, while they were passable, it's still not like a good view to have. Right. That would be tricky. Uh, I like the way you go about it, though. It's just like, you know, I am just want to tell a good story. I'm not necessarily focusing on this stuff. And if the editors want to change it, that's fine. As long as you're willing to have something change and you're not going to fight back all the time, I think uh, publishers will definitely love to work with you in the future. Yeah, you got to choose your battles, right? Is, there, is this really important? And there's some. there were some instances with, you know, where I just put my foot down. No, let's leave that sentence. It works. It's it's funny. Um, it helps move things forward or whatever the reason was. Uh, but, you know, most of the time I say, yeah, you know, you know, you're right that, that we can make this better if we move this around or tighten this up or swap these scenes. So and now it's so easy. Right. I mean, it's not like we're writing on typewriters anymore i mean we can yeah. move text around and blocks of text around and chapters and if it doesn't work we can put it back to the way it was yesterday so director's cut yeah i'm pretty yeah exactly so yeah i i i, I don't have an adversarial relationship um with my editors so far <laughs> but i reserve the right to have one well you know once uh yesteryear and uh after pearl just blow up into yeah. the stratosphere and you become the number one new york go. times best-selling author you then just you do could, what you want yeah you just say hey, fuck you guys i'm writing this and i'm just i don't care if everybody hates it this is yeah. the book coming out <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice right yeah <laughs> So has the publishing process been pretty smooth for you? Because we've heard, hor who was it, uh, David Hay, I think when he was on, he was telling us about these awful contracts a lot of writers get roped into. Have you had any issues with that stuff? Uh, I'm friends with David Hay, David Scott Hay. He's, uh, we went to Queens together. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, he's nice. one of, yeah, he's, yeah, he's one of my favorite people. I'm looking forward to seeing him at uh, AWP next year. I've been very lucky. Uh, I've only worked with two publishers, and they've both been 
upfront and honest with me. And uh, I, I've avoided that. So the way I fear it is it took me 30 years to get published. I already, you know, suffered enough. <laughs> so the writing gods, the writing gods are, gave me, you know, good publishers to work with so far. Knock on wood. Yeah, well, you can't complain. Then you got, you know, at least three books out of them that haven't had any problems. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we had a, f- a blast talking to David when he was just on, what, last month? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and he was doing all kinds of fun stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we need to do is go to some kind of convention with all the writers we have on here. Right. That'd be pretty fun. We wear our fancy hats and monocles. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask, with the going back to yesteryear, with just the uh, the subject matter of like the Lone Ranger and just that stuff, were you like always like a, a fan of the character, or is it just because with it being there in Buffalo, like from you know where you're from and stuff like that, you just you just kind of knew the stuff, or like what kind of got that you know that ball rolling, for, you know, for that. Yeah, I, you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch the, the 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 Lone Ranger TV show in syndication. It was on after school. But I, I, I tell people I wasn't a Lone Ranger fan. I, I became a Fran Stryker fan. And I had never heard of Fran Stryker uh, before I started writing the book. Uh, I was in a bar or a party, and somebody had said to me that the guy who wrote the Lone Ranger was from Buffalo. And I said, there's no way. I would have known this. I'm a Buffalo-based writer. Buffalo's a very good town about promoting and claiming uh, creative people who have anything to do with the city. You know, whether it's the Goo Goo Dolls or Joyce Carol Oates, we claim them as our own. So I said, there's no way I would have known about this. And so, of course, I Google it and find out not only was Stryker a, a Buffalo guy, he lived in my neighborhood, you know, 90 years ago. Oh, wow, that's uh, cool. <laughs> he, yeah, he went to high school two blocks from my old house. He wrote The Lone Ranger just north of me on, on Granger Place, and I never heard of him. And then I think it was because that that lie, that myth that Trendle kept saying, kept repeating that he was the creator of The Lone Ranger, I think Fran kind of, that helped Fran get forgotten a little bit. So that's what got me started. It wasn't that I was a big Lone Ranger fan as a kid. Uh, but mostly I was just really intrigued by Stryker's story and, and wanted to tell it in, in my own way. I say that he, it rem- reminds me a lot. Like he lines up with, um, uh, what's his name? Bob Finger, the part of the creator of Batman. Yeah. The actual creator of Batman, not Bob Kane, who, yeah. who stole all of his, you know, ideas and, you know, got all the, you know, the rights and stuff like that. Those two seem very uh, similar to me in, like in that regard. Bill Finger, not Bob. Bill, yeah, yeah. Bill Finger. I think what happens is anytime there's like a new medium that's introduced, right, um, there is examples of where people were taken advantage of. So, you know, the Lone Ranger that my book's based out of. And then a little bit later, Superman. um, You know, there's controversy about the rights and the payment for that. Batman, like you mentioned. But then you go like to the early days of rock and roll, the 1950s, and a lot of those those black rock and rollers, you know, Little Richard and Chuck Berry, I mean, they all had, you know, terrible experiences with record companies and rights to their work and payments. So it seems like every time there's like a new something new, whether it's comic books or a radio show or, you know, a new form of music, the, the creative artists sometimes are so desperate to get their work out there that that they fall victims to you know bad bad contracts and unscrupulous uh 
uh, radio station owners. <laughs> yeah. Well, sad to say that still happens you know, very often sure. to up and coming people. It's just you could expose these yeah. uh, record labels and uh, publishers if they do these things, but they still, people get all these horrible yeah. contracts and it's like, what do you do? You just have to ride. Even famous authors yeah. have signed awful book deals and then they have to ride it out and then you get yeah. some really shitty books because it's like, I just wrote it in a day. I want to get it out there. Yeah, just to get my contract over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did the Lone Ranger start off as a comic strip or a radio show? Radio, I think. Right? Radio show? No, it's, yeah, it started out as a radio show and like I said, that came first. That was based on the covered wagon days script that that uh, Stryker repurposed, and then you know it started getting very popular, and they wanted to appeal to the kids. So there was the comic strips in the newspaper. There was you know comic books, toys. Um, it was really he was one of the first. The Lone Ranger character was one of those first that really kind of was successful in all mediums. You know. Uh, radio, comic books, uh, movies, television. It, it was really one of the first to, to really to, to jump around and be successful. Um, and like I said, this year is the, the 90th anniversary of its radio premiere. So it's it's still around today. And it seems like they got a lot of like the early like imagery of like the good guy. Because like, you know, with like the, the mask yeah. and, and because wasn't it a white yeah. mask too? Or was it like, was it like a normal like kind of like black domino mask? I, I can't remember. He, he, the black yeah, as yeah. a black a black mass, and, and and you're right. Stryker was very concerned. Once it got popular, he was aware of how the children love this character. So he actually wrote out guidelines for how the character should be depicted. Some of the things that he that if you're writing the Lone Ranger, he has to have perfect grammar. If there's a scene that is a you can't be in a scene that's set in a saloon, right? It has to be like a cafe where they're serving food and you can't see the Lone Ranger drinking or smoking. Stryker was very conscious that he wanted to keep the Lone Ranger as a role model for his young listeners. And in the 30s and 40s, there was the Lone Ranger fan club. And one of the things that the the kids who joined this fan club, one thing they got was the the Lone Ranger Creed that Stryker wrote. And this was basically the moral code. This is, if you want to be like the Lone Ranger, this is the, the rules you have to follow, kind of like the Ten Commandments. And one of those, those um, tenets of the code was do what's best for the greatest number. And I always think back to, yeah, he sold the rights to Lone Ranger for $10, but he wasn't a, a, a stupid man or a bad businessman. He just thought by taking the safe money, that's what would have been best for everybody in his family, get them through the depression. So I really think that moral code, that Lone Ranger creed is a reflection of what Stryker really believed. Um, that was his moral code. So, yeah, I was really impressed with, with uh, Stryker, the man that I learned about. And, and hopefully that comes through with my version of Stryker, the, the fictional character. Well, that's really cool that he had the forethought to impart those morals on his character that ended up becoming so popular. So kids had something positive to look up to. Because, uh, like, one of the things about, you know, comic books in that time was, one, it was viewed as just for kids, and two, it was, uh, you know, a lot of it's very over the top, and people worried how they worried when TV became popular, that it would rot your brain and, you know, make you a right, delinquent right. and all this stuff. So he actually created a character that parents would want their kids to read or listen to on the radio. Yeah, I, th- right? I, 
I, yeah, I think so. And I think the Lone Ranger was also attractive to adults in the 1930s, listening to those early radio programs. I think it was popular with them because here were, you know, the nation was really suffering and, you know, homes were getting foreclosed, possessions were being repossessed. And here was this character that was out looking out for the little guy. Um, that very first episode, based on episode number 10 of Covered Wagon Days, that became one of the early episodes for the Lone Ranger. The storyline is this a sayer is trying to steal the rights to a gold mine that this prospector has been spending his whole life, you know, out there searching for gold. And this assayer is trying to claim it as his own, which is kind of ironic because you, you figure a year later, or, or 10 years later, I should say, in the 40s, Trendle is starting to claim that he wrote The Lone Ranger and trying to claim that for his own when, yeah. when I believe Stryker did it. But I think the the, the adults of the, the early 30s were kind of drawn to that, that, hey, no one's helping me. You know, we're suffering through this depression. Here's this guy who's helping the little guy, who's helping the miner get the rights back to his his claim who is looking out for the, the little guy who's getting um, taken advantage of. And I think, I think as a nation during that period, a lot of folks felt that way, that you know they were taken advantage of by Wall Street and big business and the government, and they were taking solace in this character who was always um, fighting for justice. Well, it really, yeah, it gave the nation hope when they sorely needed it the most because, you know, coming off the Depression and then you had World War II, it's just like how bleak can things really get? And you're going to, yeah, you know, you're going to you're gonna take that hope anywhere you can get it. So when you get a character that comes along that actually doesn't just give you hope but inspires you to be a better person, you know, that's far and few in society and like popular culture that doesn't come along very often. You know, one thing I was always interested in was the relationship between the Lone Ranger and Zorro, because I think Zorro came out before, like 1919 or something like that. And I remember, I think they, because I just remember vaguely crossovers. I'm sure somewhere down the line. Yeah, so I always thought that was interesting. I always wondered if, like, uh, the Lone Ranger was inspired by Zorro anyway, because I think they always said Batman was. Yeah, well, <laughs> they, they say that's the movie that they were seeing at the theater. Zorro. Zorro. Well... I'll tell you what was interesting. I had just started writing, like the, just started writing, like not very far into the very first draft. And I'm on Facebook, you know, wasting time. And a friend of mine, Taryn Celestan, who's a a fine writer, originally from Niagara Falls, not too far from my house. Now she lives down in New Orleans. She posts on Facebook, was a black man the inspiration for the Lone Ranger? And it was like one of those spooky moments, you know, Norman Mailer talks about that writing's a spooky art. And here's here I am just starting a book on the Lone Ranger. And out of nowhere is this idea that never once entered my mind that the inspiration could be a black man. And what the art. So I clicked on the article and read the article. And the article is about a man named Bass Reeves. And you may have heard of him recently because I think it's Paramount came out with a streaming series about Bass Reeves. Uh, And Bass was a U.S. Marshal. Uh, He was a runaway slave. And according to legend, you know, he stole a Confederate horse and rode out to the Oklahoma Territory. And he lives with the couple of various Indian tribes. 
in the area. Um, so he learned the land. He learned to shoot. Um, he had Native American friends and was all seen riding with, with him as a companion. And after the Emancipation Proclamation, he became a U.S. Marshal. And he was known as, you know, a fighter for ju- justice. Uh, he even brought his son in on attempted murder or murder charges. He was like the quintessential good guy. He rode a big white horse, just like the Lone Ranger rode silver. Instead of throwing silver bullets, his calling card was uh, silver dollars. When he was riding out of town, he would just toss a silver dollar into the street for people to find. Or if you brushed down his horse, gave him oats, here's a silver dollar for you. Sometimes he wore a mask to hide his features. So some people claim that that has to be the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. The striker died before he had a chance to write his autobiography and I didn't find anything in his papers up at the University of Buffalo that indicated that Bass Reeves was the inspiration for The Lone Ranger. But you know what? I'm writing a novel. I'm not writing nonfiction. I'm not writing Stryker's biography. I'm not writing the history of The Lone Ranger. I'm writing Yesteryear, a, a, a historical novel, imagining the origin story. So in my book, Bass Reeves is absolutely the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. Uh, so uh, I didn't deal too much with Zorro. That never really came up. Uh, but Bass Reeves certainly came out of nowhere and uh, became a major part of the, of the novel. I mean, that is a really badass theory. Yeah. And that does sound kind of spot on. Oh, we're getting yelled at again. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. Well, we're at the hour mark anyway. Yeah. We actually managed to get a full episode, so... Uh, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna investigate that now. I wish there was some actual definitive answer though, because right. that is pretty cool. I have to check out that series too. Yeah, no. That as he was as you were talking about that, I do remember seeing uh like commotions for that show. Yeah. Now knowing that what yeah. it's actually about now makes it even more interesting. Right. I watched the first couple of episodes. It's worth it's worth checking out. What is that on? Paramount. Paramount. It's on Paramount, I believe. Yeah. It's always on the one I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Stephen, uh, you know, despite all the technical difficulties, that was a, that was a really fun chat. Yeah, I like. Yeah, had a great time. Well, you also did something very notable here. You made me not just think about a character that I never really gave much thought to, but you made me want to read about the Lone Ranger. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously, yesteryear is a perfect start, <laughs> yeah. but it's just absolutely. The <laughs> yeah, fact start that, with yesteryear <laughs> yeah. and go from there. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you made it a noir story that just really sells it for me because you just made it sound so fun. So I really hope our listeners want to check that out. Uh, if they do want to check that out. Where can they go? Uh, you know, the book's available worldwide, so they can go to their favorite bookstore or their favorite place online and, and order it. Um, you can go through my website, which is um, www.sg, and then my last name, E-O-A-N-N-O-U.com, um, and there'll be links there. Or you can go to my publisher, sfwp.com, and you can get it directly from them. All right, excellent. Yeah. Any social media or anything for people to connect with you or just the website? No, I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Those are the two that I uh, I understand. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, just just look me up. You know, that's an easy last name. Well, it's a difficult last name, but there's not many out there who are writers. So you'll you'll find me. Yeah, that's one benefit. When I looked you up, it came up immediately yeah. with everything. So I was like, oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, I recommend checking out Blue Sky, too, because there's a lot of writers on there that have uh, switched over from Twitter. And it seems like that. Might oh, be, interesting. Yeah, that might be the new booming uh, way to get some engagement because. I don't know yeah, about sure. you, but my Twitter engagement fell off over the last year and a half or so, just like nobody cares anymore. Yeah, it's kind of kind of startling. Yeah, but Blue Sky, I mean, 
limited people on there, but they actually see your stuff, at least for now. So worth checking out. Okay. Absolutely. Anyway, that was another fine episode of the DPW Podcast, huh, Spencer? Yes. Uh, If you folks want to check out our stuff, as well as uh, the links we'll put up, you could go to at DPW Podcast on Instagram, uh, Twitter, or X, or whatever it is these days, Facebook, and YouTube, right? YouTube, yes, I do believe. No video. No video. Sometimes I post stupid videos. It's been a while. Uh, And your OnlyFans this week is the Roswell Rascal. Yeah. What does that entail? I'm just getting into mischief. Just mischief. <laughs> that's kind <laughs> of a good throwback, like a little rascal. Yeah. yeah that's, that's wholesome. That's not bad. I got a cowlick in my hair. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, we thank you for listening. We thank you, Stephen, for coming on and putting up with the nonsense that we put you through. And uh, yeah. we hope to have you back. You know, uh, you don't have to wait till 2025 yeah. for your next book. You can come on anytime. <laughs> Maybe when we get our hey. technical difficulties figured out. I'm going to buy a new computer this week <laughs> so that doesn't happen. Because we have all these guests that want to come on. It's like, well, I can't do that with the shitty Chromebook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be happy to come back. I had a lot of fun tonight, guys. Thank you. Yep, no problem. Hey, Caleb, you wanted to see me? Ah, Spencer, my good fellow. I've been expecting you. (laughs) Uh, yeah, so did you want something or... Want? Goodness, no. Require. Require? Yes. I require your services for the briefest of moments. Okay. Surely you can see the predicament I'm in. Well, actually, no, I can't. I lost my glasses at the pub last night. A pub, you say? Surely you can't be serious. As serious as a fart during a recto exam. And stop calling me Shirley. Rightio. Anyway, if your spectacles were affixed upon your face, you'd see that I, the host of the most prodigious writing and books podcast in the business, has been immobilized by a rather substantial stack of fallen folios. What? My to-read pile finally fell on me while I was taking a nap. But you're on a podcast table. I hardly see how that matters. And you're naked. I hardly see how that matters. Dude, your hairy ass is touching my drink coaster. I hardly see how that matters. It matters to me. Can you just unbury me? No way. Your reckless reading got you into this mess. Blockhead! Wait! Don't go! There's a copy of War and Peace wedged in my taint. Spencer, can you at least leave me a bottle of whiskey? Hello? Can't get enough drunken nonsense? Listen to new episodes of the Drunken Pen Writing Podcast every Tuesday wherever you get your pods.